Did you know that real estate is the method where many people in America have become multimillionaires? Do you want to learn about real estate? Stand by. Welcome to the Real Estate Exam Podcast. This is a podcast where we will provide you sample lessons for the real estate exam for the states which we offer full real estate exam audio lessons. Our audio lessons are designed so that you can study for the real estate exam in your state while driving, exercising, or otherwise using time which would be unavailable for reading or looking at a computer monitor. For more information on the full series of lessons, which we have available in various states, go to reexampodcast.com. Good luck in your studies. A career in real estate sales can be extremely rewarding, but the first step is to get your real estate exam license. This is Franz. Welcome back. This is the third sample lesson for the California Real Estate Salesperson Exam Prep. This lesson is going to be your third lesson covering property ownership and land use regulations. Let's get on to the lesson. Welcome to this lesson entitled Property Ownership and Land Use Control and Regulations, Part 3. In this lesson, we are going to be learning a little bit more about some of the regulations that you're going to run into when talking about real estate and property in general. So let's go ahead and jump right in. First, let's talk about some of the overarching federal regulations that you're going to run into. One is the Clean Air Act, and this is a law that came around in the 1970s, and it's trying to control air pollution that kind of pollution that's produced by industry. But even since it was passed in 1970, there have been more than 40 different amendments or changes that have been put onto the original law. So that's continually being tweaked, but the main, but the main idea is the same, that we're trying to have fewer problems with the air. Similar to that is the Clean Water Act. This was passed in 1972 and is aimed at controlling water pollution, especially limiting or eliminating dumping by either individuals or companies. In 1969, there was another act called the National Environmental Policy Act, and this was done after a major oil spill called the Santa Barbara oil spill. And it made that the person who owns the property, whether it's an individual or a company, is responsible for making sure that the environment is safe. Trying, taking measures to prevent accidents and to prevent pollution wherever it's reasonably possible. Another one is called the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. So, CERCLA. C-E-R-C-L-A. This came about in the in 1980, and it's kind of a it's a fund, a super fund even that is called, 
that can be used to purchase resources to deal with hazardous waste sites, such as when there's oil spills or there's other kind of contaminants that leak into the water. Though it also says that whoever made the spill is then responsible for the cleanup as well. The Endangered Species Act came around in 1973, and it's meant to protect both animals and plants that are at risk of becoming extinct. One of the things that it says is that these endangered animals or plants can't be hunted or harmed, and that the states can seize any land that it deems essential to preserving these species. So if it, this, there's only one habitat or a few habitats of the species left, then the state can seize that land and protect the species there. The next is the Safe Drinking Water Act of 1974. And it is just meant to protect the safety and quality of the drinking water supply in the United States. And to do that, it, it is meant to protect water sources, such as rivers, lakes, and reservoirs, so that they are not contaminated. The next is called the Toxic Substance Control Act. This came around in 1976. And it just says that when a company or some sort of entity creates a new chemical compound, that it has to be registered and regulated so that people can understand what it is they're using and what potential harmful side effects or other effects that it might have on the environment or people who handle it. And then finally, we have the Residential Lead-Based Paint Hazard Reduction Act. This one came along a little later in 1992, and it's meant to reduce the number of buildings that have lead-based paint because lead-based paint has been shown to be hazardous to the health. It can cause different conditions that people want to avoid. And so over time, people are trying to reduce the number of houses that have this lead-based paint. So those are some of the federal guidelines. Let's talk a little bit more about some state guidelines focus in a little bit more and see what we can learn about what's specific to California. The first is the Alquist Priolo Earthquake Fault Zoning Act. And this applies to any California development that's done in an earthquake fault zone. And unfortunately, that's quite a large portion of California. It helps control the construction of properties or any other, so houses or buildings, so that they're not too close to the actual fault itself, so, or that they're built with a stronger code than those that are not close to a fault. The next is the Seismic Hazards Mapping Act. And this is just to also another one to help regulate properties that are close to an earthquake zone. Then we have what's called the Coastal Zone Conservation Act, and this is just a way to preserve things that are located within a coastal zone. And then the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, that was passed in 1970. And under this law, you might require an environmental report 
also known as an EIR, before any subdivision is approved. So that's talking a little bit about first the federal oversight, then the state oversight, in this case California, then we have what are called private controls. Now private controls are a little bit different. They are, they are voluntary restrictions that landowners, homeowners use, or they can also be passed down from the homeowner, the homeowner association. These restrictions are plainly set forth when you get the deed. And they're binding not only on the initial owner, but any future owner. So it doesn't matter whether the property passes from one person to another, it's always going to be in effect. There are three kinds or forms of private controls. Conditions, covenants, and restrictions. Let's first talk a little bit about condition. And this refers to the current status of a property such as the structures that are on it and how the property is going to be sustained over time and how so how it's supposed to look going into the future. So this is, as you remember, that stays from one owner to the next. The second is a covenant. A covenant is a promise to uphold a specific kind of action or a specific kind of use that the property is for. So the saying if this is a hospital now, then if, if someone else bought it out, then they pr would promise to keep it as a hospital. And then we have restrictions. And these are prohibitions, things that people are not allowed to do, certain behaviors that are not allowed on the property, such as you might have a restriction against adding different structures or modifying existing structures in the future. So one of these types of private controls is called the subdivision. And for the most part, a subdivision is or just what it sounds like. It's dividing a parcel of, parcel of land for the purpose of selling it. So you've got a very large piece of land, and then you subdivide it into smaller pieces. Now in California, subdivisions are regulated by two different laws, the Subdivision Map Act and the Subdivided Lands Law. There are different kinds of subdivisions. There's planned developments, condominiums, community apartment projects, and stock cooperatives. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about those two different acts, the Subdivision Map Act and the Subdivided Lands Law. The Subdivision Map Act just talks about the different conditions that somebody has to meet in order to get approval for a subdivision. And it requires the specific local governments of different cities and towns to have ordinances in place that they can use to directly control the types of subdivisions and the different physical improvements required to make a subdivision. There's two different things that this is trying to do. One, it wants to try to coordinate a subdivision's design, so the, the way the different lots work, the streets, the plumbing, the sewer, all of that. And so that each new subdivision fits in with the overall community plan. 
And the second thing it's trying to do is to ensure that whoever's doing the subdivision will properly complete the public areas. So the, say, the sidewalks that need to be done and different things like that. Then we have the subdivided lands law. This law is meant to protect people from fraud, either whether it's a misrepresentation or it's some other form of lying that's done when they, a subdivided property is sold. So this requires that before the property can be sold, that certain disclosures are given to the person who is trying to buy the land. And so in this way, it's kind of a transparency thing. They want to be completely honest up front so that the person who bought the land doesn't come later and say that they've been swindled. So let's go ahead and talk about the few different kinds of subdivisions that there are. So there are two different kinds of subdivisions. The first one is called a common interest subdivision, and the second is an undivided interest. So in a common interest subdivision, all the people who are going in on it, all, they're called the purchasers, own or lease a separate lot or unit. So there might be different apartments, it might be different houses on different lots in the subdivision, but each one has their own lot or unit or whatever it is, and then they go in together on the common areas of the entire project. And there are four types of these common interests. We have the condominium. So condominiums, they're just just that. Each one has a, a separate a kind of apartment that a person owns, but then there's often a overall fee for the upkeep of the common areas, a homeowner's association fee or that sort of thing. Then we have a planned development. And these are different lots or parcels that are owned separately that have some areas owned in common. So these could be so a development of different houses, but then they all go in together on the common areas. And they have some, often have a homeowners association who then goes in and makes sure that all the common areas are cared for and then collects funds from each of the homeowners in order to do that. Then we have a stock cooperative. This is a corporation that's formed to hold the title to improved real property. And then everyone who's going in on it is a shareholder. They each hold stock in the corporation and then receive the right to occupy part of that real property. And then, which can be transferred if they transfer their stock ownership as well. And then like, like most companies, they have a board of directors who then oversees the handling of the corporation and the stock that's in the corporation. And finally, we have a community apartment project. And this is a group of apartments where the owners elect a governing board which operates and maintains the project. So those are all a in the common interest category. Then we have what's called the undivided interest category. And this is a partial interest in the whole bit of land that you're talking about. So it's an undivided interest. The land itself hasn't been divided into different parcels or different units, but it's 
ownership is the thing that's been divided. So instead of have, saying, okay, this is my lot, that's your lot, so the land itself has been divided, instead it's the ownership that's been divided. Whenever there are five or more undivided interest in a on a piece of land for the purpose of selling it or leasing it, that means that is a subdivision, and then it requires it to be regulated. In addition to these two, you might also see what's called a timeshare interest, either a timeshare estate, which is ownership interest in a real property with the exclusive right to occupy it for just specific time. So you say, you might say you, you have the rights to, for these two weeks, it's a timeshare. So you don't, it's not your place of living all of the time, but you can buy into the timeshare and then periodically say, okay, I'm claiming it for these two weeks or a month or whatever you want. And then timeshare use. So this is, you get the exclusive right to occupy a certain space, but you don't get ownership in it. All right, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some ownership rights and restrictions. So when someone buys a piece of real property, the rights of ownership are not the only things that are considered. And there's several different kind of degrees of ownership. There's, there's not just one kind of saying, oh, I own all of it and that's it. And these different degrees often have to do with how long the ownership lasts and whether the ownership is able to be transferred. There are two major categories of estates. The first one is called a freehold estate, and the second one is just a non-freehold estate. And each of these is divided into different subcategories with different limitations, different rights for the owners. But let's go ahead and talk about kind of the basic difference between freehold estates and non-freehold estates. When you have a freehold estate, you get the exclusive right to own, use, and transfer for an indefinite period of time. So that means that it's not saying it's only for five years or 10 years. You can have that as long as you want. You can own the property, you can use what's on the property, you can transfer the, your ownership of the property. And it's also something that people can inherit. So you can leave it to your estate. So if you would die, you could say, I leave then this property to my surviving family members or to my wife or to who I'm, who, or to whomever you would like. And so, as I mentioned, there are some subcategories of these freehold estates. The first is fee simple absolute. And this is by far the most common type of freehold estate. And you get a certain list of rights. You can live in the property, you can rent it, you can mortgage it, you could even sell the property, you can demolish the property, you can build new things on the property. You can test for different minerals, like if you have a parcel of land, you want to see if there's oil or natural gas or some other valuable mineral there, you're free to do that. And you can also restrict the use of the property so that other people cannot use it if you don't want them to do. Then we have what's called fee simple defeasible. Now this carries with it the same rights as absolute, but it comes with then conditions. 
and if these conditions are met, then the property reverts to a prior owner. But these conditions, they have to be something that's within the law. They can't be something illegal. That doesn't work. Then we have life estates. A life estate gets all the rights of property for their entire lifespan, and they can sell and lease whatever interest they have in the property. However, as soon as they die, everything, all of the interest they have is terminated. So those are all freehold estates that you have a pretty kind of wide range of rights and things that you can do with your freehold estates. Now let's talk about non-freehold estates. It's a little bit different. A non-freehold estate is just a lease or a contract that only allows you possession of the property for a certain period of time. So remember, the freehold estates had an indefinite timer. So just as long as you wanted to have the property, you could have it. But a non-freehold estate will not allow you to keep it indefinitely. It's set down in the contract how long you're allowed to have it. And after that, the, any rights that you have then revert back to the property owner. So the relationship created here is usually one of a lessee and a tenant. The lessee is the person leasing the property out to you, and then you, who are leasing the property, are known as a tenant, or sometimes a lesser and a landlord. And there are four different types of non-freehold estates in California law. Let's go ahead and talk about those. The first is an estate at will, also known as a tenancy at will. Either party can terminate the contract at any time. However, in California, you are required to give a 30 days notice of such termination. So if you want to terminate, you can do that 30 days from now. The next is an estate for years. And this is an, it just has a fixed starting and end date. The contract can be as short as a few hours, a few days, or it can be many, many years. But it has a specific time limit that's set out in the contract. Then we have an estate from period to period. This is pretty similar to the estate for years, but it's automatically renewed from a period of time to another period of time, unless one of the parties gives notice of termination. So you can say the period is a year, and so from year to year it will just be, be renewed and the person will keep paying to lease the property unless one of the parties says they want out of the contract. So that goes on just for as long as they want. We have an estate at sufferance, which is the use or occupancy against the owner's wishes. So like a tenant who does not vacate the property when their lease runs out. So that's, they're doing something illegal there. Then we have the fee upon condition. And this is just saying that whoever is the tenant has a variable fee. So it, the fee is based on different things that can change over time, such as increases in property tax rates or the market value of the property. So the tenant knows that their rent can go up or down depending on the different fluctuations of the market. 
There are several different ways in California that you can hold a title to real property. They're saying that you own real property. If you're not married, you're single, then you can take the title as the sole owner. So you own it all by yourself. When you are married, then you can take the title as what's called a joint tenant so that you both own the title together. You can even own a title jointly with someone other than your spouse, so say a business partner or someone else of that nature. And there are different kind of restrictions for each of these kinds of relationships. So let's just briefly talk about these different kinds of ownership. So the main two categories are estate or ownership in severality. That's that just means that a single person owns it, or you could have co-ownership. Two or more people own the property. One form of co-ownership is called joint tenancy, and that's two or more parties. They have an undivided interest in the property. So they don't actually divide the property into, into lots, they just divide the ownership of the property. One of the things that applies to joint tenancy is survivorship. That means if that a co-owner can't transfer his ownership of the property when he dies. Instead, the person who survived will automatically take, take over the part of the person who died. There are four other things that you, terms that you would talk about when you talk about joint tenancy, and these are all unities. They're kind of rules that go with joint tenancy. There's a unity of time. And that means that interest is gained by both of the tenants simultaneously. The unit, unity of title, that means that both tenants have an equal claim on the title. Unity of interest, they have the same interest in the same property. And the unity of possession, that means they have the same right to possess the property. So that's a joint tenancy. Then we have what's called a tenancy in common. This is a form of ownership where you have two or more parties who have the property simultaneously. But this one does not include a right of survivorship. So when one person dies, it doesn't automatically go to the other person or party. Then we have a community property. And this is an ownership owned by spouses or registered domestic partners. So any personal property that they get while living at this property is considered a community property so that they own it together. And both spouses then have the rights over the property. And this could have a right of survivorship or not, but it's just dependent on whether that's in the contract. Then finally, we have a tenancy in partnership. And this is when two or more people combine assets and property for business purposes. So they each share equally the profits and the losses arising from their ownership of whatever property it is. There are two kinds of partnerships in this category. A general partnership, that's an association a people or a company that's not been incorporated and all parties are personally responsible for anything that happens in the partnership. Then you also have a limited partnership and then 
That just means that the partners don't have any liability beyond their own investment. So that is the end of this lesson for today. Thank you for listening. This is Franz again. Thank you for listening to the third lesson in the five lesson sample series of lessons. Tomorrow you're going to be moving into a new topic called acquisition, transfer, escrow, and taxation. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this lesson valuable. Again, we are offering audio lessons for the real estate exam for various states. Check out our website, reexampodcast.com, to see if we have audio lessons available for your state. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, please contact me by using the contact form at the website, reexampodcast.com. Keep studying.